Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. This time last year, Stephanomics celebrated the new year by asking some of Bloomberg's best and brightest what we could expect the next 12 months to bring. And we all completely failed to see what was coming. I'm not going to let that put me off another attempt, but I have taken the precaution of broadening the net a bit. Hopefully this lot will be even better and even brighter. We really do have a lot of firepower gathered on this Zoom call today. Here in London, Bloomberg TV's preeminent interviewer and correspondent at large, Francine Lacroix. We also have Business Week's senior economic correspondent and columnist, Peter Coy, sitting in New York and dialing in from Washington, Tom Orlick, well known to this podcast as Bloomberg's chief economist. Finally, we have Sharon Chen. She's now in London, having just joined Bloomberg Green. But until recently, she was sitting in the hot seat in China as Bloomberg's Beijing bureau chief. Welcome to everyone. And thank you so much uh, for being here. Um, I've already said we spent most of 2020 talking about something that was barely on anyone's radar at the end of 2019, the coronavirus. Um, this is about looking ahead, not looking back. Very briefly, I wanted to start by asking each of you what the most memorable moment of 2020 was. Um, I guess in a year that professional and personal got far too close together at times, um, it's hard to tell the difference, but I I guess I'm talking professionally here. Peter Coy, your most memorable moment. Well, Stephanie, you already said that the coronavirus was the shock that took us all by surprise. But my, my biggest shock really was what came after that which was in the United States when mask wearing, which scientists and doctors agree can help prevent the spread of the coronavirus, became a political statement. And not wearing a mask became a political statement where people who sided with Donald Trump felt that wearing a mask was somehow a slap in the president's face. And this had incalculable consequences for the health of the American people as well as the health of the U.S. economy, so many lives could have been saved and so many dollars of GDP could have been saved if only people had socially distanced and worn masks religiously. I should say on the the positive, I think probably my surprise was just how quickly governments uh, stepped in uh, with fiscal support for economies, at least around the industrial countries and the extent to which it did cushion the blow for so many households. We had a much smaller hit on incomes, by and large, with some important exceptions, than the hit, the straightforward hit to the economy. So I guess that's the slightly more positive side of the government response, which we did actually see in the US too. So that's a glass half full. (laughs) (laughs) Sharon Chen, the coronavirus was the obvious, uh, made a lot of 2020 memorable, but what was the most distinctive moment for you? Yeah, I mean, for me, the moment that really stands out was the day they locked down Wuhan. I mean, it was just incredible. Like we had never experienced anything like that. We couldn't really understand what was happening, that they would just lock down an entire city um, of millions of people. And then they they extended that to the whole of Hubei, um, which was more than 50 million people. And it was just so difficult to comprehend what was happening. And that was the moment it really hit home that, you know, this was serious and it was going to be the major news story um, for the entire year. Uh, But other than that, I mean, I think the most surprising thing that happened was just recently in September, China coming out and saying that, 
you know, they want to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2060. It's the world's biggest carbon emitter. And leading up to President Xi Jinping's announcement at the UN, you know, we had been getting a lot of signals that China was prioritizing economic growth over its climate commitments. Um, and since then, we've seen um, eight out of the 10 major economies, biggest economies in the world say they want to go to net zero as well. You're right. That was a big, a big positive shot we had in in uh, in the autumn. Francine Lacroix. I think the um, you know what surprised me is actually after ups and downs is the fact that we believe Europe is now a force for good. You know, if if you think back to late 2019, there was really possible political populism in Europe, and if you take Italy, which is really hard hit by the COVID you know, crisis. And, you know, you could also say really botched the pandemic response. It now has more deaths than coronavirus, of coronavirus in the UK. It just feels a lot closer to Europe than it did a year ago back in 2019. I don't know if you remember, but, you know, we had then uh, Mr. Salvini saying that he felt closer to Moscow than Brussels. And the majority of Italians now believe that Europe will save them because of the funds from the recovery fund. Uh, of course, they still have to allocate the money and to see whether Italy uses them wisely. But overall, it was this European Union unity in the face of Brexit, in the face of COVID, that I think I'll remember for 2020. And despite these ups and downs, it showed that actually Europe really does come together, usually in times of crisis. Just recently, I had a headline jump out at me, a column by uh, Ferdinando Giuliano um, of Bloomberg, that Italians are starting to like the Germans. Um, And that's probably not also not a headline we would have expected to see uh, 12 months ago. Tom Orlick. So um, I I wanted to pick up on Peter's pessimism. Um, The failure of mask wearing in the United States was really striking. Um, I think the failure of global coordination around the response to the coronavirus crisis was also really striking. If there was ever a moment for uh, the global community to come together around a medical response and an economic response, surely this was it. Um, And that coordination has just really been notable by its absence. Um, Indeed, if we think about the world's most important um, relationship, the relationship between China and the United States, actually, over the course of the COVID crisis, it's got markedly worse. Um, One thing that stuck out to me, there was a moment over the summer uh, where there was a coordinated series of speeches by senior US officials. Uh, We had Pompeo, the Secretary of State, um, Barr, the Attorney General, uh, O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, all coming out uh, and in a coordinated way, uh, taking a really aggressive swing at China. Um, and framing the US-China relationship, not just as a relationship of economic competition, um, but almost as a kind of an existential struggle between democracy and a single party state, between capitalism and a state-dominated economy. Um, And I find that really striking because until now, um, those two things have been kind of compartmentalised, right? There's been a view that even though there are some very important differences between the US and the West and the Ch- and China in terms of how society is organized, we can still cooperate in terms of trade. Perhaps we can cooperate on things like climate change. Um, and over the course of the COVID year, that seemed to change. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see with the Biden administration coming in, how they manage tensions across that broader range of subjects. Sharon Chen, you you mentioned the the lockdown in Wuhan. I remember we've spoken to you a couple of times 
when you were in Beijing this year, once when you had just returned from Wuhan and you were going through quarantine. Um, having started at the centre of this pandemic, uh, we look at China now, the rest of the world looks at it and sees it coming out of this pandemic apparently almost unscathed. Uh, it's the only large economy that will grow this year and the government, if anything, seems strengthened. When you were in China, is that what it felt like on the inside too? Or has the system perhaps been shaken in ways that, that we can't see? Yeah, I mean, I think that's generally right. When I left in October, I mean, everything was back to normal, like hot pot restaurants were packed, people eating, you know, sharing communal food, um, tra domestic travel was back in full swing. You know, it really felt like life had returned to normal. And it was even more stark when I landed in London and it was like going back in time to the worst of the pandemic um, in China. So I think in that sense, you know, the economy really has kind of gotten back to where it was just in a day-to-day -day kind of experience. And also, I think you're right that the way the government handled the pandemic and then how other governments outside China handled the pandemic really validated the Chinese model for a lot of people inside China. But I think that there are a lot of things below the surface that have shaken the system. You know, just like in every other country, the pandemic exacerbated inequality. Millions of migrant workers lost their jobs. Those in the service sector were hit extremely badly. I mean, that's the main problem the government faces now is supporting those groups of people. And in China, that's on a massive scale. Um, and we also see how it's become more internationally isolated because of the fallout from the pandemic. And all of that is also going to affect the economy and people who are dependent on exports and outside markets. I mean, Tom, we, we've got a lot of China expertise on this programme, rightly so, uh, because you lived uh, many years in Beijing too, looking ahead. Do you think 2021 is the year when China consolidates the gains it's made in the last 12 months from handling the virus so effectively? So, so China's the only big economy which is going to grow this year. Uh, we think they'll expand around 2%. Um, next year, we think they'll grow around 8%. Um, so it's a kind of, it's an irony of the COVID crisis that a problem which started in China, in Wuhan, as, as Sharon mentions, um, is actually going to end with China closing the gap um, in terms of GDP, in terms of economic capacity um, with the United States. I was actually just reading um, uh, a big book about Putin and Putin's rule in Russia. And uh, one of the points the author makes was that Putin was emboldened by the what he saw as the failure of the United States in response to Hurricane Katrina and how they didn't get ahead of that problem. And the, this really shook Putin's view of America. He thought, God, goodness, these guys... They're not any better than we are at dealing with problems. And so maybe I can play a bit of a bigger role on the global stage. Um, and I wonder if we're going to see some of that following the COVID crisis as well. China's going to come out of this economically stronger, but they're also going to come out of it emboldened with a sort of stronger belief in the relative strength of their own model. And how do you think China's viewing the Biden administration? I mean, is this is it? Is it the end of trade wars? I don't think so. Um, if we go back to um, 2001, 
that moment when China joined the World Trade Organization. Um, part of the reason why there was scope for kind of win-win cooperation, we give you a little bit, you give us a little bit, and everyone's better off, is because China was just so far behind in terms of the size of its eco economy and the capacity of its economy. Um, and what we've seen in the last uh, 20 years is that partly as a result of that WTO entry, China's just accelerated up the global GDP rankings. Um, and they're now, you know, the US can feel their sort of hot breath on their back. The kind of the competition is real, it's visceral. And we've seen US public opinion and global public opinion move very decisively against China. Um, and I think what that means is that the room for manoeuvre for the Biden administration as they think about ways to reset the relationship with China is just pretty limited. Peter Coy, it's, it's terrifying how long uh, you've been <laughs> reporting on the global economy and the US economy for, for Business Week, more than 30 years. But if you think of all the administrations you've seen come and go, uh, looking at who's been announced for the Biden cabinet and other key uh, positions, uh, we know he's inherited an incredibly difficult terrain. How do you think the incoming uh, President-elect Biden is hoping to spend his first 100 days. And what do you think could upset those plans? Well, of course, the tradition of the first 100 days is that it's a time when a new administration wants to hit the ground running, notch some early wins, establish its ability to get things done, impress people, and then maybe build on that. And that's exactly what Biden has in mind. So he's going to first tackle, the, of course, the pandemic. Job number one, he wants to uh, encourage people to wear masks for the first 100 days. He wants to have 100 million vaccines distributed in the first 100 days. He wants to rejoin the World Health Organization, which he can do unilaterally. Beyond that, he's looking to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, which, again, he can do without anybody's permission. Rescind some of the rules blocking traveler immigration from Muslim majority nations. Again, something within his power deal with some of the asylum rules on the Mexican border. Uh, these are all things that he can and will do early on and maybe establish a new tone for the administration. Other things are going to be much harder for him to do. For example, we're barely struggling now to accomplish a new coronavirus relief program. It's unlikely that a new Congress is going to want to immediately give him another one. And then we get into some of the real... Uh, difficult issues like, well, he wants to raise taxes on the rich. He wants to raise the corporate income tax. He wants a gigantic green investment program, $2 trillion. So he's got his work cut out for him. So when we think about uh, foreign policy, you know, we've tended to say it's a return to normalcy when it comes to the US and the rest of the world. And Tony Blinken, the incoming Secretary of State, is very well known to people uh, in the rest of the world. But what surprises do you think the rest of the world should look out for? I mean, is this really going to be back to the Obama-Clinton type foreign policy or something different? I think some of the personnel does go back to Clinton and Obama, but the world has changed. And the biggest change is the U.S. relationship with China, which other people here uh, on this call know more than I do. But what I can say is that Anybody who thinks that 
uh, relations with China are going to clear right up now that there's a new president are in for a big disappointment. I mean, Tony Blinken, the secretary of state, Jake Sullivan, as national security advisor, have been fairly hawkish on China, for example, in the South China Sea, freedom of navigation operations. If anything, the U.S. will be prosecuting more of those. Human rights is another example where Trump has pretty much given the Chinese a pass on human rights. And yet the U.S. will, under Blinken, Sullivan and Biden, of course, will be pushing on Hong Kong as well as the Uyghurs in Western China. Uh, I think that there's there's going to be a lot of stress in that relationship. Well, we spend a lot of time on China. Uh, we should we should get back to Europe with uh, Francine Lacroix. Um, overall, you spend a big chunk of most of your days talking to senior business leaders and policymakers. What do you think that the European elite, if we can say that, is focused on for 2021? I mean, there's a lot of pe- obviously a lot of countries that are still in um, renewed lockdown. Do you think they they are managing to lift their eyes up uh, from that or are they just too caught up with the COVID crisis still? Well, Stephanie, I feel like they try and look up and then every time they try and look up, there's either, you know, another lockdown or some kind of stop and start scenario. So they're very focused on the recovery. There are probably two main risks to Europe, you know, and to the outlook. First, there's this path of the second wave of the pandemic, unclear, uh, to be honest, for me where it goes. Because if you look at the effect of the rollout of the vaccine, you know, I wouldn't underestimate the challenges of delivering this to large swathes of the population. And I also would point to the fact that we still don't know whether you can still pass it on even if you get the vaccine. On uh, then the recovery fund, I think there's a real questions amongst you know, newsmakers and chief executive about where the money goes. So we have big words, big ideas in Europe, the deal on climate change, Merkel also lately calling for this health union. But actually, leaders know that they need to be more aggressive in cutting greenhouse gas emissions over the next decade. That's sure been stamped. But for chief executives, they want to know where. Where are these projects, where the money goes? And so what they're worried about is that you have projects, but actually the money gets squandered like it has in the past. So I think the next six months is, is really make or break. And the other thing, very quickly, is solvency. And Mario Draghi was talking about that, is that if, if you know, government uh, programs run out in 2021, who do you save for companies? And are you saving the wrong companies that actually shouldn't be saved because of this huge transformation in the economy? Well, and something that Mario Draghi, when he was head of the European Central Bank, used to talk about a lot was needing to have fiscal support along with the the monetary fiscal action. We did, as you said at the start, we did see that this year. Um, Maybe with this big EU recovery fund, we start to see deeper collaboration, risk sharing on the fiscal front among European economies. Uh, What's going to determine whether that really happens over the next year or so, that we, whether that grows or whether it ends up being just a one-off? So I think the first six months of the year would probably be a reckoning for Europe. A lot will depend on how economies fare next year, uh, whether the solvency crisis takes hold and then gives way to populist leaders in Europe. If you look at the political dimension in Europe, it should never be underestimated, especially when you're talking about Europe you know, coming more together. It's unclear where we land post-pandemic, so we have to really you know, think about that and not be too optimistic. We'll probably have an adjustment. We may have some unwinding of some of the policies. But if you're a Euro optimist and you look at the past and actually Europe does not really have any undoing progress on the integration front apart from Brexit. So you could be optimistic that, you know, they're not going to undo what they've done so far. I mean, Tom, if we step back from this and think about where the 
where the world is headed economically in 2021. I know that your team has been pulling together its its forecasts. Briefly tell us what you're expecting and I guess also highlight what you think could go, go right or wrong. We're expecting growth for the global economy around 5% next year. So pretty impressive rebound. It's not quite a V, um, but it's substantial. It's a substantial portion of the upswing of the V. Within that, of course, drilling into the country detail, people talk about comorbidities making the um, the COVID virus more serious for individuals. There are also some comorbidities that make the economic impact more serious for different countries. Um, Peter sort of already suggested it, but there's the trust deficit in the United States, which stymied the public health response and is going to deepen the crisis and slow the recovery. Um, In the UK, Brexit now approaching its end game. That combination of the Brexit hit uh, and the virus hit is going to be a problem for the United Kingdom. And then in countries like Italy with very high debt levels, again, some additional burdens, which are going to mean the recovery from the COVID hit is slower than it otherwise would be. I wonder whether we'll be surprised by the speed of the bounce back in many economies. Um, There is such a Maybe I'm just speaking personally, but there's such a great desire to to go back to to normal and maybe even double up on holidays and other things that one's not been able uh, to do. Um, There is a view that says that that kind of bounce back could produce inflation. Um, What do you think? So we see wide output gaps as far as the eye can see. Um, And when you've got a wide output gap, you've got resources which are not being used. You've got people who want to work. Lots of spare capacity. And and so you don't have inflation. Um, So inflation is not in our 2021 view. It's not in our 2022 view. But that doesn't mean it isn't a risk. We've got some powerful forces at work. We've got deglobalization, which means that those cheap Chinese or Vietnamese imports, which have been dragging on prices and denting workers' capacity to negotiate for more money in the West, um, that sort of drag on inflation is going to be reduced. Um, We've got more progressive politicians running for office and being elected to office, potentially with policies like pushing up the minimum wage. Uh, And perhaps, as you suggest, Stephanie, the economy could just come roaring back more quickly than anyone imagines. Um, So inflation's not in our forecast for 2021, 2022 as a substantial risk. Um, We might be wrong. If it does come back, that's going to put central banks in a very, very difficult position. They're in this extraordinary spot where they're essentially printing money to finance fiscal stimulus. And they can do that because inflation is entirely subdued. As soon as inflation starts to come back, they're going to be in a very difficult position trying to balance and find an impossible balance between their inflation-fighting mandate and their financial stability mandate. Well, Francine, I can exclusively reveal that the head of the European Central Bank has a serious soft spot for you. Uh, when Christine Lagarde was head of the IMF still, I was I saw her for something else and I mentioned I was going to Bloomberg and she pa- she sort of paused with this, this sort of look in her eye of joy saying, ah, where Francine Lacroix is. Um, so uh, you, I, there's probably... I followed her, 
around the globe for I think the best part of you know like two decades, Stephanie. So well, she does. <laughs> she definitely gets it. a certain look in her eyes when she thinks of you. But it also results, thankfully, for Bloomberg in lots of great interviews. And you had several with her this year. Um, she's got a big review of monetary policy coming, which got delayed from 2020. It's going to be in the summer of 21. Um, we did have uh, in the autumn of 2020 the Federal Reserve's review of monetary policy, which did make a difference, did say that policy was going to be different over the next few years in an effort to get inflation higher. Do you think the European Central Bank's new framework could make that kind of difference? I think I think it could actually, and we've heard that from her. Although it's too soon to say, and we've heard it also from Ollie Wren. I love what Ollie Wren said. He uh, gave a speech, I think, two or three weeks ago, which was very, you know, simple and powerful. He said, "Why is the strategy review so important?" And he basically answered it by saying, "Well, the simple answer is change, especially the change in the operating environment of monetary policy." And we sometimes forget when we do this day in day out, thinking about inflation, how the world has changed, right? In the current environment of low rates negative demand shocks. The problem is, you know, it could be, but it could be quite rare that it's too high inflation. It's at least more remote. And so the problem is low inflation, that's more relevant. And so how do you ensure that inflation expectations will not forever stay anchored at, you know, too low a level? So if, if you ask it through that prism, which is quite simple, but powerful, you could see something uh, change at the ECB next year. We should say those in America listening who don't necessarily know who Olli Rehn is, he's the governor of the Bank of Finland, uh, but was also a, a senior official in the European uh, Commission for a while. And uh, journalists like him because he gives very engaging uh, interviews. Yeah. And, um, and a great football player. And he's a great, of course, he's a great football player. <laughs> Why wouldn't you be? Um, Sharon Chen, you, your new job is working with this new group, Green, uh, a new publication uh, within Bloomberg. Um, how do you think... All the talk that we've had about climate change and people some now really truly realizing the seriousness of this challenge, how do you think that will play out in 2021? Yeah, I mean, this year really, you know, we have seen a lot of global momentum um, towards setting net zero targets and carbon neutrality goals. But like you say, I mean, it's very hard to tell because these are such long term targets, these kind of lofty ambitions. Uh, the UN just held the Climate Ambition Summit last weekend, and the idea was that everyone had to come and make new pledges, and it was really quite disappointing and kind of underscored how, you know, these big, ambitious, nice-sounding targets need to be backed up by shorter-term, actionable goals. Um, but, you know, I think the entire global economy is shifting, is going through this energy transition. And if you look at China, for example, I mean, it's not just seeking to be net zero for purely altruistic reasons. I mean, it knows that if it can dominate these new renewable energy industries that will really put the economy ahead of others. And I think um, other leaders also see that. And I think we will continue moving in that direction. The big question is whether we can do it fast enough. We are already at 1.2 degrees Celsius warming from pre-industrial levels and the Paris Agreement, the ideal would be to keep it to 1.5, um, you know, and we're, we're just not really on track to do that right now. We've all obviously been on a very steep learning curve when it comes to pandemics and coronaviruses this year. I suspect we're going to be now on a very steep learning curve when it comes to green technologies and the challenges of moving to net zero. Now that you're sitting in green, uh, 
what what are we going to be talking about in a year or two's time um, that we've never heard of today? Are there any left field technologies out there that you think are actually going to end up being a big part of the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think hydrogen is the main next thing that and related to hydrogen, ammonia, which can be used to store and transport the hydrogen. But I mean, it's not a new technology. It's been around for a very long time, but it seems, you know, a lot of major economies are going to rely a lot on it to meet their net zero targets. And we have Airbus trying to develop the first hydrogen plane, um, which could really be a game changer in terms of removing those emissions, which are probably going to be one of the hardest to remove as long as people keep traveling. But, you know, turning to hydrogen will require reinventing a lot of industries, the airline industry, shipping, um, the way a lot of um, economies function now. But I think that that will be a major focus. Now, Peter, you started by talking about how you were surprised that uh, wearing a mask became a partisan issue. Um, in the US, actually, the environment was not so partisan five or 10 years ago, and now it does seem to be deeply divided along party lines. Do you think that the new president can do anything to change that? Or just have all the wildfires done something to change that? First of all, I really agree with you that environment was not always such a partisan issue. Teddy Roosevelt who started the National Parks was a Republican, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, Richard Nixon actually started the Environmental Protection Agency and signed the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. So there's a long tradition of green in the Republican Party, but under Trump in particular, that's faded away. Trump portrayed it as a contest of environment versus labor. So now Biden's trying to turn that around by saying we can do both. In fact, he says, when he thinks about uh, the green and climate change, he thinks about creating jobs. Now, that's a challenge, too, because uh, it's not always as simple as he might say. Um, there are people who would argue, economists, that trying to hit two birds with one stone, that is, create jobs and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, could end up you know, missing both birds, uh, you know, that you want to focus on pick one goal and choose the target that, uh, choose the tool that is best suited to that target. Uh, and he has splits already within his coalition. For example, Biden is not opposed to all hydraulic fracturing, fracking. He's also not opposed to all coal mining. And many, of course, the environmentalists in his uh, coalition are. And I just don't know if the American public are ready for a strong uh, meaningful attack on climate change. The Washington Post Kaiser Family Foundation did a survey last year. They found, yeah, sure, three quarters of Americans consider climate change a crisis, but fewer than half were willing to pay a $2 monthly tax on their electricity bills in the name of climate progress. And only a third were in favor of raising the federal gasoline tax by 10 cents a gallon. These are fairly minor measures in the context of global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And yet, uh, he, Biden has a big job ahead of him trying to pull the American public along to think about it that way. Okay, we've talked too long about too many things. I did start with some of the things that had caught us by surprise this year. Um, what do you think would be? What do you think will be the wild cards or the potential big surprises for twenty twenty one? Tom Wallach. So, as you say, Stephanie, we were caught by surprise by the. Hollywood movie scenario of a tiny virus laying the 
world economy waste. Um, so I've done some extensive research on the outlook for 2021 based on um, disaster movies from the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, so the team's going to be modelling the macro impact of um, freak weather events causing a second ice age, uh, a huge meteor heading towards Earth, um, and potentially a giant lizard heading from Japan towards the uh, US coast. Uh, we're going to try and put a GDP number on each of those and don't forget um, Sharknado. <laughs> that's not that's not calculable, I'm afraid, Peter. Um, uh, so, um, but more seriously, I mean, uh, and this I think is actually more a central scenario than a risk. Um, I, I just worry that the Biden administration is going to underwhelm. If we look at the composition of the Biden administration, um, it's a lot of people who have a lot of experience from time in the Obama uh, administration, um, but perhaps because of that experience, more of a kind of tendency to look for the center, to look for a place of kind of moderation and compromise. Um, so my concern for, for 2021 and looking further forwards is that the Biden administration underwhelms um, and by doing so kind of inadvertently confirms the big argument which the Trump administration and other sort of populists around the world have been making which is that government doesn't work and government can't solve uh, the big problems. Peter Coy. You know you asked for a wild card so this is not necessarily a mainstream prediction but going back to what Tom and Bloomberg Economics is saying we're not expecting of outbreak of inflation in the U.S. in 2021. But let's just say there is. Let's say there's a few months where the CPI year over year does go above 2%. Now, that's actually what's supposed to happen. The Fed wants that to happen on paper anyway. They said that they you need to make up for periods of undershooting on the target by overshooting for some period of time. But my prediction, or I should say my wild card, is if that happens, there is going to be an outbreak of cold sweat in the foreheads of the members of the Federal Open Market Committee. People are going to panic that inflation is getting out of control. And despite their best of intentions, despite all their promises about letting inflation go above 2%, they're going to start throttling back on monetary stimulus and trying to make sure that, that inflation doesn't get out of control again. Francine Lacroix, your wild card. I'm so happy I don't have Tom's job in actually forecasting <laughs> what will happen in 2021. I would probably just look at the markets because the markets are on a tear for the moment and something could happen. You can have a bubble bursting. And then this morning, I was actually reading a note from Standard Chartered um, looking at the potential market surprises for 2021. Now, they say that they're unlikely but potential surprises. And I think they had like five, maybe eight, but they had Democrats winning control of the Senate. They had a U.S.-China detente driving a yuan rally to six versus the dollar. They had oil crashing at $20 per barrel which I thought was quite interesting because of OPEC rupture. And then they also had Biden resigning in favor of Vice President Kamala Harris. That's great. So we've got, we've got about four or five things to worry about for the price of one from you, Francine. That's, that's typically efficient. You see on Bloomberg television, you just pack so much into, into 30 seconds. You can't stick with just one. Um, Sharon Chen. Um, I think the biggest wild card for me is what happens with US-China. I mean, you know, I think for the... Chinese government, the one upside of having a Biden administration is that it's back to kind of more predictable politics, you know, more predictable counterpart or, or um, 
yeah, sparring partner um, because things were just so erratic under Trump. But, you know, the downside of that for them is that obviously, you know, a Biden administration can be a lot more strategic um, and also could strengthen alliances with other Western countries and find ways to, you know, inflict pain. And, um, you know, the, the biggest wild card, of course, is that something actually happens militarily, either in the South China Sea or with Taiwan, uh, which will likely be, I think, the place where things could escalate um, the most. And, you know, I think before this year, I also thought it was a very remote possibility, but we've seen that a lot of things can escalate very quickly. And I seem to remember thinking about the South China Sea at this time a year ago, one of these years, it's surely going to um, produce something frightening. I'm thrilled, in fact, that we've not talked about Brexit in all this time. So I guess I'd have to also throw in a wild card for the end of the United Kingdom. I think that the politics of, of Brexit as this now plays out uh, uh, after whatever arrangement we get with Europe uh, or non-arrangement, I think the, the, the debate could shift remarkably quickly to Scotland's desire to leave and potentially even Northern Ireland leaving the United Kingdom as well. Maybe something we'll be talking about in a year's time. Thank you so much uh, to all of you. Uh, this has been... Uh, wonderful, just a treat to have all of you together, regardless of whether um, we turn out to be right. No one will remember, they will only remember the great conversation. Francine Lacroix, Peter Coy, Sharon Chen and Tom Orlick, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. That was The Year Ahead with Stephanomics. We'll be back with more very soon. In the meantime, remember you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced, as usual, by Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to all of our expert correspondents and to the executive producer of Stephanomics, Lucy Meakin. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Happy New Year. <laughs>